on this episode of Launch Stories. Start with a very, very clear sense of mission. Like, well, why are you doing what you're doing? Why does it matter? And why should people care about it? You know, and it, it doesn't have to be screening everyone for cancer, but it has to be something that you feel very, very motivated by personally. Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardy. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories, get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Emmy Gall, co-founder and CEO of Ezra, a healthcare technology company based in New York City that enables early cancer detection using MRI scans and artificial intelligence. Emmy is a truly global entrepreneur. He launched his first startup, Brainiant, in Romania when he was just 19 years old. Over the course of 10 years, Emmy moved himself and the company's headquarters to London, where he built Brainiant into one of Europe's leading ad tech companies. After a successful exit and a two-year stint as an executive at the acquiring company, Emmy returned to his entrepreneurial roots to launch Ezra. I'll be speaking to him today about what he's learned from building a business in three very different startup ecosystems and what it means to build a purpose-driven company. Let's listen to Emmy Gall's launch story. Hi, Emmy. Welcome. Thank you, Dalton. Love your uh, podcast voice. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on it. Thank you. So listen, it's no secret. We've known each other for quite a while. In fact, I was one of your first angel investors back in Brainiant over 10 years ago. And I've witnessed the company's development and your personal development as an entrepreneur and as executive over these years. So I've got one critical question. Um, do you still wear your trademark red shoes? <laughs> I don't, actually. When, when I moved to New York, uh, I, I stopped wearing red shoes. But all of my 20s, I actually wore red shoes. And uh, the, the, There's a funny story there, which is that I was going to present to Seedcamp, uh, which is like, uh -huh. the, they, they were the first investor in Brainiant. And uh, I went with my girlfriend at the time, wife now, Spina, to buy a pair of shoes. Uh -huh. And we went to this mall in Bucharest, and uh, we couldn't find anything. Well, it's not easy to find red shoes for men, I would imagine. Actually, we weren't even looking for red shoes. We were just looking for shoes. And um, uh, we couldn't find anything. And then we walked into this one last store, and my wife saw this pair of red loafers. And she was like, you got to wear those. And I was like, no way I'm going to wear those at an event. <laughs> but I did and um, presented at this event. And then an investor came to me after the event saying, I couldn't remember the name of your company or your face, but I remember you wore red shoes and I wanted to look for you. I found you. So I wore red shoes all my 20s and then uh, retired them when I turned 30. I see. And how many pairs of red shoes did you actually own? I actually think I had like about a dozen at one point. Wow, that's a lot of pair of red shoes, I have to say. It's too many red shoes. <laughs> what did you do with them, by the way? I think I left them back in London. I see. So obviously, when we met each other in 2011, you had just moved to London. And I think you ended up raising about $4 million in investment from a number of investors for Brainiant. 
And you built a company that eventually had about customers in some 20 markets in Europe. Thinking back to that period, what was the most difficult obstacle or challenge that you had to overcome to build an international multi-market company? I think there were two. Um, the first one is with Brainian, it took us a very long time to find product market fit. I think it took us about, I started Brainian when I was 19 and I remember getting traction with Brainian when I was about 25. So it took a good six years uh -huh. to find product market fit. With the caveat that the first two years of Brainian, we were just outsourcing, building software for others. We weren't really focused on building our own product. Right. The first thing was just finding pro market fit was super hard for Brainian. Took us a very long time, um, but in the end, we got it, which which, mm -hmm. which is great. The second challenge was that, especially in Europe, uh, when you're doing sales in different markets, you have to personalize the uh, sales approach for each market. You have to hire local folks who understand the market, understand the market dynamics, understand, have relationships in that market, which wasn't uh, obvious to me when I was building Brainiac. I thought, oh, you know what? I, mean, I, I speak good English. I could go anywhere and right. sell. And it really wasn't that way. And you may remember that we struggled for a long time to roll out Brainian in multiple markets. And in the end, we ended up hiring uh, British people in London to sell and French people in France to sell. And Okay, so that's interesting. So having that local market knowledge on the sales side was a very important element of the scaling. Is there anything that you could have done in retrospect differently to speed up the product market fit process? Yeah, I think we could have iterated much faster. We, I was very kind of stubborn on the type of product that I thought people would want. And uh, I should have just been much more flexible on getting feedback and implementing the feedback and then going back to customers once we have feedback. Uh -huh. We actually got pro market fit once we started doing that, uh, just like iterating much more quickly on uh, customer feedback. And do you remember the moment at which you felt like, okay, we got it. We understand the product that the customer needs and they're willing to pay for it. I do, yeah. So it was a very critical moment, actually. We, um, ITV, which is the largest kind of broadcaster in the UK, maybe even Europe, they did an RFP for a video ad server. Yep. And uh, we competed a uh, against a couple of other companies and we won the RFP. Yeah, I remember that. It was a big, big moment in the company's history. Yeah. It was a big moment. It was an inflection point for Brainiant. <laughs> it was an inflection point for Brainiant because we competed against, we had only raised $40 million and we competed against a couple of competitors, one of which had raised like $40 million. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, we have a great product. Let's go and sell it. And that's when we hired more salespeople, started expanding and it started working much better. Right. So the, having that strategic partnership in place really pushed you over the tipping point and created that momentum you needed. As a, yeah. As a yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things I've learned uh, in working with a lot of startups across Europe is that credibility is the biggest thing you need to grip build because you're, yes. a, you're a young company, sometimes with young founders. And how do you become that trusted partner for big corporations? So one of the elements of building a successful business is building a successful team. And I remember that over the course of the, the time you built Brainiant, I mean, never grew to a very big team, but there was a time when you brought in a couple of senior people and they in, were integrated into the leadership of the company. Some worked, some didn't. What was your learning from that experience? I went through a number of people until found the right kind of uh, leadership team to grow Brainiant. And the biggest learning from that whole process and the whole process of building that leadership team took a good two, three years was hiring for culture, hiring for people who see the world as the same way I see it. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's hard to define. It's kind of like, it, it just, 
as a startup, you just need to spend a bit of time trying to understand what your culture is like, and then hiring people who are culturally aligned with those values. Uh, didn't do that at Brainian, didn't know to do that at Brainian. And so we struggled for quite a while to find the right um, form for our leadership team. In the end, we did. And when we uh, found a good leader on the revenue side, uh, Jonathan Lewis, who it was an incredible hire at Brainian, who's now running essentially Brainiant, uh, called Teeds Studio at Teeds. Okay, that's interesting. So you stuck with the company then after the acquisition? He stuck with Teeds, yeah. So he is essentially the general manager of uh, Teeds Studio, which is like a Brainiant uh, rebranded. Right. And uh, took a few years to find Jonathan, but once I did, it was just perfect cultural fit and he integrated into the team really well and the rest is history. As See. So you mentioned Teeds. So I believe that exit happened in 2016. Correct? Correct. And Teeds, for those of you who don't know, is one of was one of the clients of Brainiant, right? And right. one of the largest kind of video marketplaces in the world at the time. You actually spent two years with Teeds uh, after the acquisition to run the newly rebranded Brainiant Teeds Studio. How do you remember this period? And what was it like to become an employee after being an entrepreneur for, for so many years? It was interesting. It was the first time I was an employee uh, because I started Brainium, you know, when I was in college and then I just spent all of my 20s building Brainium. Thieves is a, like an incredibly well-run company. They were doing, when they bought Brainium, they were doing about $350 million in um, annual revenue. They're now somewhere at around $900 million. And so- Wow growth a huge growth um I, i'm pretty proud of the fact that a lot of that growth was catalyzed by the brainian product um, because feeds before brainian they were selling mostly to video advertising agencies or advertising agencies yep. with brainian they started being able to go directly to the brands uh, which kind of catalyzed the, the growth of the right. company i spent two years and my biggest learning was how focused on growth uh, the leadership team of Teeds always was like every single day the leadership team woke up and they were like okay how are we, how's growth doing what are the leading how do we get bigger how do we get bigger how do we get bigger faster how do we grow that was a big important lesson for me because with Brainian I was much more focused on product I was much mm -hmm. focused on um technology team etc and uh and it was interesting to see that at Teeds, it was all growth all the time. Uh, and how about for you personally? Did you find it difficult to adjust to a system that you hadn't actually created yourself? It wasn't actually, no. It, it, I think the Teeds culture was very similar to the Brainian culture. And um, I quite enjoyed spending time at Teeds. And if I didn't have this kind of very entrepreneurial uh, urge, I would have probably stayed at Teeds for longer because it was, it was a fun job. I was running Teed Studio about six months into my time there. They also made me chief marketing officer for the whole group, um, which is a very fun role. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was I was very keen to start Ezra. And so uh, in the end, I decided to leave and, and start a new company. Got it. Well, now you are building another business, right? As you yes. mentioned, Ezra, which is a, a technology company focused on detecting cancer early using MRI scans and artificial intelligence. What? Where did the idea for Ezra come from uh, as a business? Yeah, so I had been thinking about cancer for a while. Even while I was running, running Brainiant, I was, I was thinking about cancer. And the main motivation behind that is that I'm personally a high risk for cancer. I have mm -hmm. a couple of hundred moles on my body. That puts me in the highest risk bracket 
for uh, skin cancer. So from a very young age, I had to do uh, biopsies, have moles removed, just have dermatology checks every six months to a year. So I've always been exposed to the importance of screening. And uh, because of that exposure, I was very interested in the space. And so in, I think it was like 2014, I started volunteering for a nonprofit in Romania called Hospices of Hope, who mm-hmm. uh, they build and operate hospices that, that care for cancer patients. And then being involved with them, I realized that the main reason why people end up in hospice because of cancer is because they found cancer late. So I started looking at the numbers, started looking at the space and realized the main reason why people find cancer late is because there's no way to screen for cancer everywhere in the body that's fast, accurate, and affordable. I see. And that was the problem that I set out to build with Ezra and did a bunch of research, spoke to researchers, doctors, scientists, and uh, landed on a full body MRI powered by machine learning as well. Of the solution. Interesting. And did this problem having a personal impact on you change the way you built the business from the beginning? Absolutely. With Brainiant, I, I never quite set out to, to build a startup or launch a product. I just needed to make some money because I grew up in Bucharest, had no money. My parents didn't have any money. And so I, I was like, how do I make some, some cash? It was very different with that drive. It's very mission driven. And I set out from day one to work on this mission of detecting cancer early for everyone. And that's a very, very different approach to everything compared to Bradian, because like every day I wake up and I'm like, how can we grow towards this mission? Um, and it's a much more purposeful approach to building a company. Has that made it easier for you to attract quality people to building the company with you? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Not, not only the fact that we're mission-driven, but the fact that our mission is so important has enabled us to hire people that we probably wouldn't have otherwise been able to hire. Mm -hmm. And where are you on that mission in terms of the actual solution you're providing? Yeah, so we launched our full body in 2019. And um, we have since scanned about 1,400 people uh, and helped 13% of our members find potential cancer. Uh, And many of these individuals have done follow-up diagnostic scans, biopsies, it was confirmed cancer, they got treated and they're cancer-free. So it's working. And we're scaling it now and we're, we're growing at 40, 50% month over month, every month, 17 facilities, all in the US. And at one point we, we hope to be ready to scale it internationally. So given your experience uh, building an international company at Brainiant, are there any lessons that you've taken from that experience that you would apply to any international expansion plans at Ezra? The biggest plan that we have on international is to go for markets that I know. You know, so like uh, with Brainiant, I spent seven years in London, we worked in France. So like those are obvious markets where uh, we could go. It's a very different business than Brainiant in many ways because Ezra is very direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. Brainiant was B2B. And so I'm actually having to relearn a lot of things because it's a, it's a very different approach mm-hmm. to acquiring customers, to servicing customers. To, mar- to marketing, I would get, imagine, is a very different. One of the things we are doing that is like a, a kind of a learning from Brainiant is to just focus on a single market initially, own that market, and then go to other markets. And own that market from a geographic sense or from a niche? From a geographic and market share sense. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why we're so focused on the U.S. right now. 
And what about the whole fundraising process? Obviously, you went through that at Brainiant. You've gone through that at Ezra. Is it public how much money you guys have raised at it for Ezra? It is. Yes, we've raised $22 million. $22 million. So a significantly larger chunk than you raised with Brainiant. What yeah. was your uh, experience fundraising? How much of that was impacted by the product? How much of that was impacted by you as a second-time founder? How much of it was impacted by the fact that you were simply doing this in the US? The fundraise was easier this time around because I had pedigree. I had started a company, sold a company, there were a lot of investors who uh, invested in Brainiant, who did well, who wanted to invest in, in my next venture also. And actually, we had a very small investor in Brainiant called Accomplice, who ended up leading the series uh, seed for, uh, for Ezra. And uh, we raised $4 million in our seed, which was basically the entire amount of money we raised for Brainiant in, in our seed at Series A. And so uh, we, uh, that was actually a big learning from Brainian. We were always undercapitalized with Brainian. We never had enough money to invest in sales and teams, et cetera. I didn't want to make that mistake with Ezra. And so we raised $4 million out of the gate, which was a relatively easy raise because, one, the U.S. has a lot of capital. So a $4 million raise for a seed is a large seed, but it's not, like, crazy. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, we raised an $18 million Series A, um, which is a relatively large A. And uh, we ended up having two term sheets. We were getting a three ter third term sheet. Uh, so it was a pretty competitive round. And we ended up going with First Park Capital in New York City and Rick Heitzman, who's the founder of First Park, who's just an amazing investor. Here. And just briefly, what is the size of the company in terms of revenues, people, customers? Can you give us some, some gauge for that? Yeah, so we don't make revenue numbers public, uh, but we're 41 people uh, split between Toronto, uh, which is where most of our tech team is, and New York City. And then we have some folks in LA, um, uh, Miami, and um, we're growing at 40, 50% month over month. So okay. uh, pretty great. So very much in a high growth stage. Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. So I think one of the things that makes you so interesting as an entrepreneur is that you've actually built your career and built businesses in three very different ecosystems and markets, right? You started in Romania in a relatively underdeveloped part of the world. You moved to the UK, which is certainly a big step forward in, in development in terms of cash, but then a whole nother universe in the US uh, in terms of size and scale and opportunity. What differences have you discovered between those three different um, ecosystems in terms of the culture, the mindset, the competencies, just the opportunities for entrepreneurs? Yeah. So I'll start with Bucharest of Romania. So Bucharest is a great pool for talent uh, and a great pool for affordable talent. It's probably not as affordable anymore, uh, but when I started Brainiant, you could get an amazing software engineer for 20% of the cost you would pay in uh, the UK or the US. Yeah, I, mean, I remember the numbers. It was shocking. It was shocking, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, we were paying, maybe we had a burn of $20,000 of uh, a month for... Uh, for probably like 20 people you know that'd be like two two software engineers in the u.s probably or even less oh yeah less it'd be one <laughs> software engineer in the u.s these days yeah um so great access to tech talent however uh especially at the time it's getting better now uh, you didn't have access to product talent um so like product managers product designers that just understand how to build tech products and you didn't have access to investors so, uh, so that's why I moved to London. Now, in London, uh, much more access to investors, much more access to 
um, kind of customers, product talent, etc. Um, and I actually think London in general is a great ecosystem. It's a great launching pad for Europe. Um, uh, the community is amazing. Seedcamp is there and Seedcamp is like an incredible engine for startups in Europe. And then um, when I moved to New York, it's London square. You know, it's like just so much more of everything, more customers, more product talent, more investors more capital more competition though at the same time there's also more competition so like for any idea any initiative there's a ton of competition and you really have to be really really good in terms of product and marketing and brand and everything in order to succeed so uh it's fun because it's such a large market uh but it's also very hard to break through the noise and build something people want that investors get excited about and so on. Um, and we have that with Ezra. And when you have product market fit and a lot of funding, et cetera, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's much more fun to build a startup, you know, uh, like Brady, we were like undercapitalized, struggling for a lot of our... The emotional roller coaster you go through as an entrepreneur was the highs are higher and the lows are lower, I think, in Europe, no? Yeah, high, well, actually, the highs are high and the lows are low everywhere. And it never gets easier. <laughs> but it's certainly better when you are targeting a market that's, you know, 300 million people and a lot of them... The Ezra product costs $2,000, so it's not cheap. Uh, therefore, it's good to be in a market where there are a lot of people who can afford that. How do the Americans and the broader startup ecosystem in the U.S. view you as a European, parenthetically speaking, Central or Eastern European entrepreneur? Is that a interesting, unique element? Or is that like, what is this guy doing here? No, I, I think I genuinely think Americans don't care. It's kind of if you have, if you're a great founder, smart, build a great uh, product uh, that's growing. You can be from anywhere, literally, and you will get investors wanting to invest, and you will get customers, etc. In, in many ways, I think the U.S. is more uh, welcoming of immigrants than even the London or the U.K. because the U.S. is a country of immigrants, you know, and, and so. I never felt that uh, I was at a disadvantage uh, given that I was like Eastern European. And now that you've worked in the US, I guess, for five years, thinking back at your time at Brainiant, I remember it was always a conversation of, well, do we go to the US? When do we go to the US? Should you go to the US? In retrospect, would it have been realistic to do that from the UK to go to the US? Or is that it was just a matter of it, making it, a decision? Yeah, in retrospect, I should have gone to the US. Uh, so I, I remember vividly December of 2011, beginning of 2012, right after Andre and Credo Ventures led our Series A at Brainia. I went to the board and I was like, I think I should go to the US. And the board at the time dissuaded me from making the leap to the US. And, and they're like, hey, you know, focus on the UK, build a strong business in the UK, and then go to the US which I kind of disagreed with, but, you know, had a lot of gray hair on the board and I was like, okay, <laughs> these guys know better than me. That was right. a big learn um, for me. It's like, you know, if I have conviction about something, I should just pursue it irrespective of what I'm told by it. So speaking of learnings, obviously somebody who's been through this uh, a couple of times in a couple of different environments, what would you recommend to say, like, what are your like top three tips for young entrepreneurs who want to change the world? What should they keep in mind if they want to create a successful global business? Yeah, the first thing is start with a very, very clear sense of mission. Like, well, why are you doing what you're doing? Why does it matter? 
and why should people care about it? You know, and it, it doesn't have to be screening everyone for cancer, but it has to be something that you feel very, very motivated by personally. I think most founders don't start that way. And uh, for me, for Brainium, it was a mistake. I should have been much more purposeful about how I thought about what company I would, I would start. That's number one. Number two, especially for founders in Central and Eastern Europe, it is uh, start global from day one. Don't, don't build a product that uh, targets your local market because the local market is going to be exhausted very quickly. Um, and also, if you start with the local market, you end up tailoring the product too much for that local market, it might make it difficult to, to scale. So that's, that's the second. And then the third one is to be prepared to invest in the startup without seeing any light at the end of the tunnel for a very long time. You know, I, it took me a decade to build, uh, scale, and sell Brainiant. Uh, I started when I was 19 and sold it when I was 30. Um, I don't think it's faster than that. Uh, some people might get lucky and you know have an exit or some uh, insane growth in IPO within five, six, seven years. But most of the time, it's going to take a decade. So when you're signing up for whatever you're going to go and build, it's important to mentally know that it's going to take 10 years of your life. So you better want to build whatever you're going to build. So for all the entrepreneurs out there, persistence and perspective and a lot of uh, focus uh, mission to, uh, to to pursue the, the passion that you set out for yourself. Emmy, thank you so much. It was a, really a pleasure to uh, to catch up with you and to hear about what you're doing with Ezra and uh, and to reflect on, on some of the past, common past we've had. That's been great. And I want to thank everybody for joining me on Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. We hope you got inspired by Emmy's story and you learned some of the ingredients of a successful global business. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends.